And this is Navara FM on Resonance 104.4 FM, London's number one radio station. This week, I'm joined as ever by the enigmatic, the perspicacious James Butler at Pierce Penis. Hi, James. Hello. What the hell is going on? We're, of course, <laughs> talking about the latest with the general election. Voting takes place next Thursday on June the 8th, when Britain decides who will govern, presumably, until 2022. That's how long parliaments are meant to be, for those who've forgotten, given that the last general election was only two years ago. So, James, this morning a poll was out from Ipsos Murray, Murray, Ipsos Murray, uh, putting Labour at 40 and the Tories at 45. This is a phone poll, large mm -hmm. sample, mm -hmm. quite reliable. So this is really interesting, isn't it? Because all of a sudden we're looking at the possibility over the last week in particular of a hung parliament. Yeah, I mean, so remote, but there. It, 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 it is remote. And one of the things we can do today is talk through, though, you know, those likely scenarios, those possible scenarios about what's, you know, what we're likely to see after June the 8th. Um, so the, the, the closing of these polls uh, the, 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 has been extremely unexpected. Uh, if you remember six weeks ago, uh, I went into this election thinking the polls were going to narrow a bit, but probably uh, you could make more or less stable predictions from uh, the, the the polls as they were uh, six weeks ago. I, I I thought then that the Conservative majority would be about 70 seats. Uh, that was my private prediction at the time. I'm now having to think about revising that in the light of these polls. And we can come on to talk about what that would mean um, yeah. I mean, I'm a true believer. Yeah, I know. As listeners right. will know. And even I, <laughs> even I thought Labour would get 35%. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, which, if the polling is to be believed, the lower end of the margin of error. And by the way, people go, oh, you can't believe the polls. The polls were right with Trump, with Brexit, with 2015, within the margin of error, which is 3% either side, which is quite big, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But if we take, for instance, today's poll on the margin of error, Labour at 40, it means they're either at 43 or 37. Uh, uh, and I was thinking 35, best case scenario. So 35% would seem highly likely at this point, by the way, that'd probably be quite bad for Labour, uh -huh. uh, given where the Tories are at. But I'm a true believer and I thought that. <laughs> and now Labour are regularly polling 38, 39 yeah, yeah, and today 40. Yeah, I mean, there's been some really significant variation in the polls that have come out in, in the past few weeks. And obviously those who are listening who pay very close attention to these things will, will have been perhaps a bit confused because in the last election we saw a really strong herding effect. So pollsters reading each other's polls mm. and sort of probably adjusting their models so, so things looked more or less similar. It's one of the things that led to that big shock, if you remember, on the election night when the exit poll came out and things started looking very, very different indeed. Um, so there's a, it's worth asking why this is happening. <laughs> and the thing that's really astonishing for me in the past week, but, but maybe just a little bit longer than a week, is Theresa May, uh, and it, it, who is conducting the strangest election campaign I think I've ever seen. Um, you know, she, she, she's brittle. She, she isn't, doesn't seem to be... She, 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 she's never been brilliant at press conferences, right? I mean, she's not, uh, she's not a kind of slick and oleaginous politician like David Cameron was. She's, she's certainly no Blair. But she had a certain kind of, uh, you, know, you know, authoritarian, uh, you know, haughtiness to she her. She kept it quite simple and she did it. Yeah. She did that well, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was that was her her vibe. Now she's she's not looking that way at all. I mean, she looks very very anxious in in press conferences. She uh, it looks uh, <laughs> what's what was Thatcher's word? Frit, frit. She looks frit. Lancashire dialect word. Mm. Frightened. Um, it is maybe something actually we should have seen coming. Um, she uh, uh, may not Thatcher. Uh, she never participated in the hustings for her Maidstone seat when she was she initially got it right. So she never. Uh, she, she's not actually of the generation of Tories who has had to kind of claw their way into their seat, right? Like so she's from a slightly different uh, political generation. The Maidstone very safe seat, um, and the reputation she has from her time in the Home Office is that she's. Very, very centralising. She's she's pretty brittle in some ways and very, very controlling. So um, it was always possible that this kind of thing would happen. Um, but, there, I, but there does seem to me to be something odd here, and I don't know, and it might be something to do with the, the conversations that are going on in Tory HQ. It might be something to do with the way that they set up the election campaign. So um, 
Nick Timothy, who is uh, May's kind of right-hand man, uh, was very, very prominent in the writing of the manifesto and, and had quite a lot of control in Tory HQ. Uh, and Linton, the lizard Crosby, mm. uh, was not given the absolute control that he was during the last Tory election campaign. But that changed over that, the weekend, right? That so has we had, changed over the weekend. The front page of the Sunday Times had this story where it had... Tory MP saying that Nick Timothy should be taken out and shot, quote. I mean, I don't think that's particularly <laughs> nice language to be deploying in politics generally, but you can imagine an old Tory sort of 1922 committee, an old duffer going, you should be taken out and shot, <laughs> probably giving the quote to a journalist half pissed on, you know, finishing their bottle of port. But that probably captures a lot of the sentiment, not just from Tory MPs, but from activists. Mm. They really feel that the dementia tax in particular has yes, put them on yes. the ropes. And Crosby came in and that same article in the Sunday Times said that he had almost universal control over the messaging, over the campaign. And yet it's still been a car crash since last yeah. Sunday. She had a relaunch yesterday. She's probably going to have another relaunch. I think maybe she's actually, maybe she's had two relaunches <laughs> since Sunday. They have had two relaunches, yeah. wasn't they? And yesterday was meant to be the positive one. They're going to stop attacking Corbyn and it's going to be a positive Brexit, new kind of economy. This is great. Yeah. And then she refused a woman's hour today. It's a it's a bad look. It's a very very bad look. I mean, I the, the one thing I was listening back to the show we did a few weeks ago, and I thought, and, and I I did mention at the time that I said I thought Theresa May's one weakness was that of so, and we were talking about the way in which the public react to election campaigns and the things that determine their vote, and sometimes why it is that people seem not to like Tories but vote for them, right? Which is that they respect a kind of you know no-nonsense confidence. And, and I said what they don't like is politicians that they tend to perceive as arrogant and high-handed. And by failing to come out for debates, that's the impression that she's been giving. And that it's not unlikely that, that a, a section of the electorate will want to punish her for that. So there's that. But what I would say is that there have been these kind of conspiracy theories sort of bouncing around the, the internet that the Tories are somehow trying to lose this election. That's just not true. Um, I mean, you know, the, the, that would put Jeremy Corbyn in power, which is the thing that the, the Tories would... <laughs> it's, it's unfathomable to them that they would ever want it, right? I mean, it is just, just, just impossible. I mean, the, the thing to say, though, about it is that, that the reason that that's even thinkable as a thing, right, is that this might be the kind of election that it's actually pretty good to lose. Um, because the next two years are going to be very, very difficult, particularly for a Tory government. So, you know, there is that to be aware of there, um, that even their victory might be a bit unpleasant for them. But look, I mean, you know, I, I, I think the major story here is Theresa May and, and how, uh, you know, just how unusual her campaign is. I mean, it's just astonishing. Owen Jones um, sort of tweeted a few revelations yesterday. He'd been contacted anonymously, anonymously by a BBC journalist and they'd said that the Prime Minister's effectively pulled out of any interviews now with local radio, regional TV. So basically, Theresa May's doing no media between now and June 7th, June 8th, mm. which is unbelievable. Mm. You know, the, the PM isn't doing any media for a week. And you think, well, is that going to happen after the election? Is there still going to be this boycott of the media by the Prime Minister if she stays on? I mean, it doesn't seem attempt For me, just looking at this, even if the Tories win, she's gone. It doesn't seem tenable. She's gone in a, a six months a year, and it re reminds me, if we're looking at parallels, again, just objectively, the Tories won in 1992, but after that, John Major mm. just looked phenomenally weak, and you, of course, had the problems around the ERM, Black Wednesday. Like you said, anybody would have struggled with yeah, that. If yeah. Labour had won in 92, they would have been in trouble. So real parallels there, but this is, in fact probably far worse yeah, for the winner. Yeah, I, I do think 92 is the big structural parallel here, yeah. right? I mean, the, the, the overwhelming conditions are such that the problems that face any incoming government are really, really substantial. I mean, what I would say is that, that I think you're right, that she has really squandered what she had quite a considerable uh, goodwill from her party, right? Uh, <laughs> you know, there, there's a, there's, there was a Tory MP who was being quoted by uh, Paul War in the Huffington Post um, saying, you know... Uh, uh, people on the doorstep are telling me she's going after pensioners. She doesn't know what she's doing. She doesn't answer questions on TV. And and the MP says, I've switched from saying vote for her to vote for me. It's hard to understand how people in London uh, who get paid a lot of money made such a cluster F, a word I can't say, on air at the moment. <laughs> um, you know, uh, 
you know, it, it's, it, and he says, it's totally shattered the confidence of the parliamentary party. So this is a big deal. This is a big, big deal. Now, some of that is going to be expectations management, right? Some of, some of that, that leak and some of that conversation will be the Tories trying to manage expectation and motivate their own voters to come out to the polls. But you don't give a quote like that to a journalist if you're not really genuinely pretty angry. Um, so yeah, two weeks ago, it looked like objectively that there had been a, and th there was a major political question that that we had to think about, which is that there seemed to be for the first time probably since 1930s or so uh, a very clear and very cohesive right wing electoral majority in the country. Right, that that they had cohered to a point where that they were over 50 percent of the the electorate. That seems less clear now, and maybe maybe I was just judging things wrongly a couple of weeks ago. This wasn't remarked upon, actually, um, after local elections last month, but in the 2015 general election, and of course the left has said for so long, if only we had proportional representation, we'd have a progressive majority. Well, actually, in the 2015 general election, UKIP and the Tories got over 50% of the vote, or round about 50% of the vote. So if there was PR, they would have had a coalition. It probably would have been to the right of Theresa May, because we know that minority partners in coalition governments, when they're not weak melts like the Lib Dems, tend to be overly influential because there's so much power resting with them disproportionately. So there was that. But then with those local elections last month, actually the Lib Dem, Green, Nationalist, Labour vote was bigger than the UKIP Tory vote, which whilst not really remarked upon, and people were saying, oh, look, Corbyn has to go, Labour doing terribly, the Tories doing fantastically well. The Tories hadn't picked up as much of the UKIP vote mm. as people had expected. And yes, that's important because, like you say, uh, it had seemed recently that we had a right-wing majority in this country for the first time since the 1930s. And there's some really good polling, actually, on UKIP voters from 2015 and where they're going. And the most recent data indicates that... 35% of UKIP voters from 2015, 35% are going Tory, 20% are going Labour. And the presumption was that 75% of them would be going Tory. So something very strange is happening with that group of voters. I don't think they'll go Tory for a couple of reasons. It's the extent people in the establishment within the mainstream media were suggesting for a couple of reasons. First is foreign policy things like the war on terror. I think that bump with UKIP voters has transpired actually primarily since Labour have made that an issue. Secondly, many of them weren't actually that adverse to things like nationalisation, pay restraint, um, getting in, you know, ending zero hours contracts. So that socialist economic offer does, you know, does really well with them. Thirdly, and this is huge, and again, the sort of the London-based media, we're part of that, so I'm not sort of <laughs> lambasting yes. it, but it can be a cliche, but it's also true because it is, it is an echo, echo chamber here, was saying that Labour had to resist Article 50, that Corbyn's position on Europe was absolutely wrong, that, you know, the centre was where it sat, well, the Liberal Democrats, rightly or wrongly, are polling 7%. And Labour, rather than losing votes to their right to UKIP on Europe, to their left uh, in regard to the 48% of the Liberal Democrats, you may think that's a bad position they have, but it simply hasn't happened mm. for three reasons. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I, I mean, I think, I think that's true. Uh, and I think we can come on to talk about the Liberal Democrats because I think they're failing in this election and, and they must be pretty worried and they must be pretty worried that they might not gain any seats at all. I mean, the seat composition might change, actually. But, but um, I think the other thing that this stuff reveals to us and you're talking about kind of proportional representation there and you know what that that you know the way that that might look in this country I and mean, the other thing to remember is that there are like multiple factions within something like the Tory party which would probably split apart under PR and one of the 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 things that May will have to confront after an election is that those factions of which she is she, she's not a part of any of the factions that have been dominant in the Tory party for the last few decades she's not a kind of Thatcherite Right, she's not kind of you know Hayekian of some kind, and she's not a kind of metropolitan you know you know a liberal basically. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, a social uh, yeah, and economic yeah. liberal. Yeah, metropolitan liberal, really. Um, she's a Christian Democrat. She's an authoritarian, authoritarian Christian Democrat. And sometimes people say, like, well, that's like the natural politics of this country, uh, and that she has the potential to to unite a huge proportion of the electoral base behind her doesn't look like that's happening. Um, and, and so, I mean, you know, she's going to find perhaps it's possible that she suddenly has much less support in the parliamentary party than she did before. I mean, I, I, so I, I guess one of the things I want to turn to is the kind of cold water, 
right? That we should that we should think about the things that that are uh, inhibiting structural factors for um, in terms of kind of the labour surge. Um, so th these these converging pole lines, right? Um, so the, the the rise in labour numbers, decline in Tory numbers, leave me with a couple of questions, and they're questions that. Uh, <laughs> that we'll know the answer to in a week's time, but are hard to, to figure out the answers to now. Uh, one is turnout, right? So the, the polls which uh, really look dramatically good for the Labour Party uh, lend less weight to previous demographic turnout um, than the polls that look more negative for Labour, that, 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 that look like a less dramatic rise. And turnout... I think, as far as I'm concerned, is a pretty open question at this election. Can I respond to that? Yeah. So Comrades have the worst polls for Labour, and they wait, I think, under 30s turn out at 40%, which to me seems just grossly inaccurate. Mm. Uh, and I think YouGov waits it, and they've got the most favourable polling for Labour. The last YouGov poll was 39-42. And they wait it at 80%, which again seems very optimistic, although I must say, more likely than 40%. I think neither are likely. I'd say probably around 65, 65 for the referendum, mm. wasn't it, for 18 to 24s? I think that's realistic. Um, but then, of course, what you've got to remember is that the getting out the vote on June the 8th itself is massively, massively important. And actually, that won't be in this polling. Mm. And that's a that's an area where Labour have a huge advantage because yeah. they have so many people on the streets. Now, there's formal efforts to organise that with CLPs and Momentum are doing something. I'm not going to say it because it's a website. It's probably going to compromise regulations. But there are formal efforts to do that. But I think on the day, there'll be informal efforts and people will go on social media, they'll see this, word of mouth, text messaging. Yeah. And it's difficult to say, I think that would be big. How big will it be? Because if it's as big as it could be, then the toys are in big trouble. Yeah, I agree. And that's why I call it an open question, yeah. right? Because we just don't know. Yeah. And, you know, it's worth saying, in fact, though, that youth turnout uh, is not a fixed fact of, of, of political systems. So in France, the youth turn out in excess of their elders, right? Like, um, it, it's got something very specifically to do with the kind of Anglo system. Um, and it's a very strong long-term trend to buck. But if you think that it's at least partly to do with that, that kind of uh, anemic and kind of hollowed out technocratic politics, which is more or less determined, you know, been part of, of, of British politics for the last few decades, then you have to consider the possibility that that can reverse here, right? Because the the, the contrast between the two parties and the appeal uh, of, of at least the Labour manifesto to, to, to the use is pretty, pretty strong. It seems to be pretty strong. I mean, strong. they've done the same with party memberships, right? So again, yeah. there's another sort of truism yeah. of the political conversation in this country was that we have declining party memberships in this country. Young people don't like to join organisations, I was saying, as much as anybody else yeah, yeah, three, four years right. ago, right? Because it looked true. Yeah, and now they've joined in their droves, not just Labour, but the Greens before them, the SNP, some people are joining the Liberal Democrats. So, yes, the, like, the young have bucked that trend. Why couldn't that also mm. be the case in regard to in regard to uh, voter turnout. And also, one more thing, you know, because people are saying, well, there's only two constituencies where 18 to 24s outnumber over 65s. Labour are not basing this on the under 24s, right? Labour are polling ahead of the Tories amongst under 45s, under 50s. So when we say young people, we basically mean not old people. Right? Like, we're not well, young. Wittgenstein would love that. <laughs> we're not young. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's not like, oh, yeah, youth turn out. Like, we basically mean, I mean, millennials now, you get people, millennials who are like in their late 30s, uh, right? So, I don't understand what a millennial Gen is. Gen X is, what, somebody born in 1980. <laughs> well, that's know. quite a fluid concept. Um, I don't know. So, yes, yeah, I mean, this idea that like 19 year olds are going to win an election, nobody's nobody saying that. <laughs> right? Um, yeah, look, so I, I think. That's an open issue, right? It's one that's susceptible to a kind of voluntarist uh, effort on the day. Um, what, what concerns me more, actually, is distribution. And, you know, so people say, you know, we, oh, we live in a bubble, right? And, and that bubble isn't actually just discursive and it's not just digital, it's also geographic. Is it literal? But, <laughs> no. no, it's definitely not literal. Right. That's a shame. Um, uh, <laughs> it, it, so what I mean is that Labour seats and Tory seats tend to cluster together, right? Um, borders of big cities, it changes a bit, but... Um, but generally across the country, that's how it is. So even if you get out of your discursive bubble, uh, your, your kind of digital bubble, and meet people on the streets, that's necessarily limited, right? 
Um, so we need to look at the polls that reach those areas and we need to look at the experience of activists in those areas where, where these, these things are, are, are looking pretty marginal. Uh, and the, I think the picture that we get from there isn't clear, but it's also not great. So the big question for Labour is whether it's piling up votes in areas where it actually doesn't need them. So it could be that the surge translates in a way that, that is actually pretty disadvantageous. Um, and that, <laughs> and that this ends up. So, so I mean, there are there are specific constituencies that I'm thinking of here. So, um, the 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 real the the real bellwethers I think will be places like Wirral West or Walsall North, like maybe Darlington or Wakefield. Those would be like the top end, I think, of of the marginals there. Um, so the question, and you mentioned the UKIP vote, and I think that's a big question in those mm. as well. I mean, if you look at the London polling that was released yesterday, again, was it, it was YouGov, wasn't it? Mm. And it put Labour on 50% in London and the Tories on 33 and Labour polled 50% in London in 1997. And in 1997, they won seats like Putney, where there's currently a 10,000, 11,000, maybe 12,000 Tory majority. So if that's correct, I mean, that's massive. Um, they would win Croydon Central, they would win Enfield North, they would win... Potentially Uxbridge and Ryslip, Boris's seat. <laughs> um, they would be very competitive and they'd win Battersea, they'd be very competitive in Putney. This, and people go, oh, well, you know, there's no Tories in London. That's completely incorrect. There's about 20 Tory seats in London. Uh, and of course, it's not just Labour challenging them, it's also the Lib Dems. So if that's correct, the Tories could stand to lose, I'd say, eight seats in London. But then, of course, like you say, obviously, if it's 50% Labour in London, that would mean that the national polling would be, you know, what we're seeing in terms of favourable polling nationally for Labour would be equally unrepresentative because it's clustering the ma clustering in the major cities. So, yes, that's a major issue. And like you say, where that, that UKIP vote is going, somewhere like Stoke, we had the by-election there recently, Gareth Snell won for Labour, and the combined UKIP-Tory vote, I, th I think, is bigger than the Labour vote. And in places like that, you know, Labour are going to see almost certainly their majority shrink, even if they got nationally 35, mm. 40, I think 35% is quite low at this point. But let's say 35% plus. Um, and we could even see a situation. There was actually a poll out yesterday, Britain Alex. It was a Britain Alex kind of poll. It's a Twitter account. They do all the, you know, they obviously discern all the information, but they do some of their own data collection and analysis themselves. And they had Labour at 35% and on 200 seats which is kind of funny. Mm. And it actually, you know, it could be higher than that and they could end up on 200 seats. So it's something that we wanted to talk about today and we finally got round to after 20 minutes. <laughs> we were going to outline, I guess, the possibility of a Tory government, the, uh, the possibility of a hung parliament, the possibility, this is, you know, I mean, it's 14 to 1 with the bookies, I think, a Labour majority, <laughs> um, which that's good value, but it's still very unlikely. Yeah. Um, hey, Corbyn was... Uh, 11 to 2 to be the next PM and now it's gone down to I think to like 6 to 2 3 to 1 anyway um, <laughs> yes yeah, so there's those three possibilities and then we want to basically talk about how we think the left should respond what would be a politically yeah, I mean, I, I, appropriate yeah, I response think, I think yeah I think that's I think that's true I mean I think I think all of the scenarios bring up different questions right like and, and there, are two, there are like also two Tory scenarios right like which is a large and small majority um, or the, a minority Tory minority government yeah Tory minority Possible. government would be really weird yeah. um uh, what I would say, what will require kind of, you know, so before we go into this, is that in any of these scenarios, I think there are there is a, a couple of issues that that require kind of extra parliamentary pressure on the political process, and and the the top one of those, of course, is migration. Um, I, I mean, I bang on about this all the time, but I think it's true. Um, at the moment, it doesn't. It seems to me that that the Labour manifesto, in particular. Is I mean the Tory manifesto, as we said last week, is probably the most xenophobic political manifesto that the Tory Party has issued in you know a long time. Um, the Labour manifesto is 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 has its faults, I think, on migration, but I think it's about as far as the party could move, and it can only move further left if there is really significant pressure, uh, and that will require building a political consensus. Uh, you know, outside of the Labour Party first, I think. Um, so, and I mean, it requires uh, conduits for that within the party as well. Like, I don't think it's acceptable for people in the Labour Party to say, oh, well, because I'm in the Labour Party, I can't really talk, I can't really say anything positive about migration. That That is wrong. But, you know, the pressure has to be built from outside as well. There will also, I think, because of the consequences of Brexit, likely be real pressure to, you know, in inverted commas, turn the economy around. Um, and the policy prescriptions for that will probably be austerity. 
Um, that requires major, major public argument. Um, this is a Tory government scenario. Um, the other thing to say, and it really should be part of the campaign, but it's not, is that Hunt's moves on the NHS during the election, and Caroline Malloy, who's excellent, excellent uh, NHS head, uh, she uh, she writes very, very uh, perceptively on, on on the way that the, the government treats the NHS. Um, she points out that there is a, you know, basically an argument being made that um, given the nature of changing demographics, the way we fund the NHS will have to change. Um, and that is, a, you know, laying the groundwork uh, for really extensive privatisation, I think. So we have to tackle that. A uh, couple of other things that uh, don't seem to be playing in, in this election, but um, maybe probably should. One is that after it's done, there is an election law that has gagged significant parts of civil society and made it impossible for them to intervene in the election, including in areas where they are undisputed experts. And it just cannot be allowed to stand. It is absurd that specialist organisations dealing with major social issues are unable to give political opinions in this election. It just has to it just has to be done. Like we ha that law has to change. It is absolutely unjust and it's absolutely what, what undemocratic. Is it, it representation? It's, it's lobbying act. It's lobbying act. But previous to that as well, I mean, interest in, interest representation organisations yeah, under the representation of the People's Act. Is that it? Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah I mean, that's bananas. Like a housing charity can't say which party has better housing policies. Yeah, yeah. it's bananas. Oh, there we are, um, isn't it? Yeah, it's it's completely <laughs> completely. Um, the other thing to say that's literally why they exist to influence government policy. Yeah, yeah. that's literally why they exist. Yeah. Um, the other thing that I would say is that maybe the thing that that you know it, that has struck me about the the way that manifestos are dealt with is that the promises in the Labour manifesto, as with some of the others, the Lib Dem manifesto is also pretty specific. That um, not that it, it necessarily really matters. Um, the uh, the promises in the Tory man manifesto are, are largely they largely say we will consult. On this issue, when they're asked, but we will consult. We will consult. And that is a, a very, very deliberately vague way of dealing with these problems. It should be obvious, but it's worth pointing out. So let's move on, and so let's talk about Tory win. Okay, so the first scenario I think is a large Tory win, and as I said at the top of the show, private prediction was seventy seats majority. That would be a substantial Tory win. I now think that that is probably the absolute ceiling of the of. A Tory win. 70. Yeah. I think that is... I don't yeah, think, yeah. I think... I can't 40, see 50, yeah. I mean, that's what I mean. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, that would be... Remember be, people were talking about 100-seat majorities six weeks ago. 200. <laughs> 200. Do you not remember? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm talking about people in touch with reality. <laughs> you know, not, not. Um, but so, so I've been revising that down. Um, but so some people hope that a, a large majority... And so what I would say is that the determining issue for the next two years is going to be Brexit, right, for, for the government. Um, some people hope that, that uh, a really significant majority would be used to support a change of stance towards soft Brexit. Uh, that doesn't seem likely to me because it's not justified by the manifesto at all. There isn't any clear indication in the manifesto or even a hint that that would be what happens. And I think for that to happen, it would have to have been trailed beforehand. Um, it's the same, I think, with the so-called progressive elements of the manifesto. So there was a lot of conversation when the Tory manifesto came out that um, May and particularly Nick Timothy were taking nominally progressive measures which would appeal to a certain section of a traditionally Labour electorate. That seems to have come rather unstuck. Um, Do you think they just overthought that? I, I think that could be a danger in politics, can't Yeah, it? I think, I, yes, yes, yeah, absolutely. You shouldn't play four-dimensional chess in politics. It, the symbolic and obvious is almost always the, the, the yeah. way to go. I mean, Which what Cameron was very good at. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so the the one that's come out today is that the promises on social rented uh, housing, uh, so housing to be done at, at social rents, are actually going to be at so-called affordable rents, which are much, much higher, um, are about 80% of market value. And that is a completely different commitment, right? So, so this this is not you know this is not uh, uh, this is it's already coming apart, this right? This is so, such a fact. But so what this means is that in the case of a, a, a Tory majority, uh, a major Tory majority, I, I don't think you'll see any of these kind of uh, kind of what you might call kind of Christian democratic uh, clientelist stuff. Like I, don't, I just don't think that's going to happen. So. Uh, 
I think in this case, what we will see is all the reactionary measures in her manifesto put through. Um, and that would be particularly the case on migration. Um, so that would involve, you know, uh, a kind of, you know, the, the uh, boosting the threshold of, you know, uh, salary for, for people to have to come. Um, in, you know, I, we've gone through this on a show before. And it's not necessarily any point in, in dwelling on it. But the major, major undertaking of the parliament will be Brexit. And I suspect that the legislative programme of a Tory government will start with the resurrection of the Great Repeal Bill. And that's a really substantial piece of legislation. I mean, I think I've pointed to it on shows before, but it is a sort of, it's, it basically involves taking the entire body of EU law transposing it to British law and then kind of taking it apart um, and changing it. Do you, if, yeah. the, if the Tories, do you really think they've got the energy to do this in the next year or two? They have to. They have to. Look at David Davis. No, I know. He's dying. <laughs> Look at Boris Johnson. <laughs> no, I know. They're I know, right? I know. decaying in front of us. <laughs> I know, but that's the problem. That's the problem. I mean, this, the, the, you know, the the um, so the legislative the they, and the legislative trajectory. It's the biggest undertaking they in British history. They have to do it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. They have to do it. And the the problem here is so the way that this would proceed, right, is that so all of this law comes across, and then um, the government uses so-called Henry VIII powers to uh, use to lay statutory instruments. Um, which change the nature of, of the law governing, you know, whatever part of EU law, which is, you know, by the way, quite large and quite substantial and, you know, all encompassing, really. Um, they will use Henry VIII's powers to change that. And the scrutiny that will be given to those kind of changes will be very, very minimal. And so th this is, you know, because uh, scrutiny of statutory instruments in the Commons is very, very, you know, th th they go in front of a committee which has, I think, about 15 minutes usually to scrutinise them, usually haven't seen the SI before, uh, and then they move on. So it really is mostly a rubber stamping process. So, um, it, I mean, the, the way that the Great Repeal Bill is uh, being talked about should be really a constitutional scandal. There is a legitimate case to make that the, the, the process of uh, the transformation of the, the EU... Aki, the, it's the name for the body of EU uh, law and regulation, should, uh, because it's an extraordinary change, should occasion a kind of extraordinary process of scrutiny. This is not an argument that's being made because it's not really an effective one or an emotional one, or, but, it, but it is one that has kind of major, I think, political and legislative implications. One of the reasons that the Great Repeal Bill is in the manifesto is that the Lords would have uh, quite substantial powers to determine their own scrutiny of the SIs um, laid before it. So they're, they're not time limited in the way that the lower house would be. But their powers would be very, very limited if it's a promise that's made in a manifesto because by convention, the Lords do not block manifesto promises. Mm. So that, I think, is one of the reasons that there has been a manifesto laid is to give the government a really strong hand. So what would, what would the left do? In the case of the Great Repeal <sighs> Well... We can't resist Article 50 because Earthworm, I, I agree. Earthworm Tim <laughs> has let us all down, hasn't he, with his 7% in the polls? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I don't, I don't, think, I don't think resisting Brexit is necessarily a coherent political position. It's a figment of the imagination, wasn't it? Yeah. I mean, I, to, to me, uh, it, it seems that the, the best thing to do here is to actually make demands for extraordinary powers of scrutiny. Um, but the way that that would be done is not clear to me. It it would have to be because there's no there's no there doesn't seem to me to be any kind of parliamentary procedure that could be used to 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 do this and I know parliamentary procedure reasonably well yeah. um like I can't think of one that that would be you know that one would be able to 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 push in that way but the, the ha you can make a demand from civil society you can make a demand intellectually and you can make a you can make a demand in argument and in in, in <laughs> voting really um that 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 says you know we we need to have power we need to have extraordinary scrutiny here um i i i 
I don't think there is any means of influencing this other than a legislative one and other than quite a remote technocratic one. It's one of the real problems about Brexit, right? So going to the streets won't stop this? No, of course not. How would Take it? it that's sort of I the, mean, like, yes, if you the, burnt down the Palace of Westminster, <laughs> it would... No, 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 no. I'm not saying that people no, should not, do that's that. Not, yeah. That's important. Just, just I'm not saying that anyone should go just and think about... Uh, it's it's neither instruction or incitement. But what I would say is that, that there is almost no means of acting on this. And this, by the way, is is one of the, the problems with this kind of uh, uh, organisation, this kind of this this kind of politics, right? And it's one of the reasons that that it's very difficult to influence uh, the EU itself, right? Like, because right. there isn't, it's not susceptible to the same kinds of political demonstrations that individual state legislatures are. But it's also, uh, you know, it's it's bodies of lawmaking are very very insulated, just like the kind that Henry VIII powers would be for uh, a, 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 a government. So, <laughs> the, the, you know, you, you know, you can't. Uh, the, the, you know, street demonstrations. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't necessarily make Direct sense. Sense. I mean, yeah, but how? Like, you can't. can't shut. You know, you can't shut down like uh, like law. It, like it, it doesn't really work. I mean, you could. Uh, you you could. Yeah, you can't occupy Strasbourg. <laughs> no, um, but yeah, I mean, look, you you could possibly, you know, I I don't know, call a general strike. But look, the, I mean, the, the 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 civil society bodies that would do that do not have the strength to do that. Frances O'Grady, I mean, she was saying, she, oh, France she's 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 she loves bits of the Tory manifesto. She's dreadful. <laughs> she's dreadful. She makes Brendan Barber seem like bloody Leon Trotsky. Yeah, look, so the thing to say here is that, look, this is one of those situations where legislative and formal political action is where the action is at. Um, I am, as you know, a big supporter of direct action, a big supporter of political demonstrations. I'm a big supporter of action outside the confines of representative democracy. But there are uh, large parts of our society that are only susceptible to political action and and that I think is something that the left has tried to avoid facing but I think is gradually facing up to but we're we're starting on the back foot so that's the thing about Brexit right like is is that this is this is going to one dominate the parliament but it's also going to be we're going to have to think seriously about how we get our uh, you know claws into it right like how you how anyone holds the government to account on this right because as far as it's gone thus far there are very very few mechanisms for scrutiny um now look obviously brexit will proceed um and it will probably proceed as badly as possible um given the way that that may has been setting it up you know she set up the possibility of like walking away from talks uh, and stuff like that and at some point right the the kind of superposition has to collapse like you can't you, you know all the things she's saying like that we're going to you know that that you know mutually contradictory things are going to be possible that has to stop at some point and it will stop in negotiations so negotiations are a bit of a poison chalice there especially for a Tory prime minister who is not necessarily going to be able to row back on pre Previous commitments, because remember, she was a Remainer, and so if she is Prime Minister and she remains Prime Minister, then she is, you know, committed um, in order to keep the kind of quite heavily right-weighted coalition yeah. and quite heavily nativist-weighted coalition uh, behind her. She really doesn't want to row back on her positions. Can I, can I just say something? It's going to sound yeah. a bit strange. I just genuinely don't think any of this is going to happen. <laughs> And that's not to say that I think there's going to be a Labour government, but it, just you saying this now, obviously the intention of our show was to talk about these various outcomes. It just seems to me bizarre, frankly, mm. that Theresa May is capable. She's not She's not going to... I just don't see how she can do this. If she hasn't got the energy to do Woman's Hour, mm. how the hell is she going to get Britain out of the EU? I don't know. I suppose in this situation, the other thing, or the, the flip side of it, is that this is probably the worst situation for the Labour Party. Right? I mean... It, case of a massive Tory majority, then uh, it looks to me like civil war will ensue. But it's, a, I mean, the serious question for the left generally, I think, um, in in regards to the Labour Party is that if this parallel with 1992 is true, then you're talking about, you know, what kind of Labour Party is in government after, uh, exactly. the, yeah, after yeah. The, 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 the May Can I just say, I mean, collapses. my people were telling me last week that um, my people were telling me last just last week Yvette Cooper and Chakarumana were fighting 
over who would be the candidate to succeed Jeremy from the right. And they couldn't decide. So they're both going to run. A la Angela Eagle and Owen Smith. Oh, I mean, this is a really impressive, like, inability of the, <sighs> Anyway, I mean... It's mind-boggling. But... Um, to be that inept. Yeah, I mean, so the other scenario is a small win for the Tories. Which seems the most Maybe likely of all the, the scenarios likely, now, yeah. right? And obviously, we, you know, should think about what counts as small is it you know the more the majority she has if that's just retained that is a disaster that would ignite what is the majority norms. 12 seats i mean no no but if you bring in the dup and all that i don't recall but like it's it's it's, not it's getting to massive. near 20 yeah, isn't yeah, it yeah. it's not massive um, and obviously Sinn fein don't sit yada 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 yep yep um imagine if Sinn fein gave labor a majority Sinn fein will never take their seats Sinn Féin will not take No, I know. Seats. I said the exact same thing to somebody when they, I said they haven't taken their seats since like 1918. <laughs> right. For the reason, like, they will not take an oath to the Queen, quite rightly. Um, well, they're like, the second biggest seat at a party in, in Stormont now. Yeah, I know, I know. But they're, they're, they're a legit yeah. political party, yeah, yeah, right? Absolutely. They always have been legitimate political parties. Oh, I mean, legit isn't like they're, they're heavyweights. Yeah. They're the third <laughs> biggest party in the Republic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, so yeah, ten or twenty more might be just about survivable for her, but yeah. like I think probably not. She will be diminished measurably in any case. So she'll be very, very weak. Uh, there's a question about Tory gains in Scotland, East Renfrewshire, maybe. Um, they're, 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 the strong kind of unionist messaging of the Tories in Scotland is finding an audience, I think. Um, well, the Labour you know, catching up there as well. Yeah, I mean, look, but there are seats in Tory, like the, the seats in Tory, <laughs> seats in Scotland that used to be Tory up until '97, and you might see that realignment yeah. going back. And historically, actually, the Tories have been a real force in Scotland. You know, up until 1955, um, there was a big, big Tory vote. In they Scotland. had the majority. They had the majority decline. of seats in Scotland in '55. They won over half they? the vote. Yeah, 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 yeah. I can't remember the number of, of seats, but I was looking at vote totals, and they won over half the vote. I mean. Thatcherism had no purchase there, but it's not the 80s anymore. Um, 700,000 people in Scotland voted for Brexit. That's a big, big constituency for the Tories to, to look at. So, um, you know, I, 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 to my mind, it surprises me that, that, and it's difficult with Ruth Davidson because she, she marks herself out as being distinct from Theresa May, but, you know, it seems to me that, that, that it, it, it surprises me that she hasn't been linked to the Westminster Party more. Um, Fraser Nelson a few years ago said, um, God, it's the second time I've mentioned Fraser Nelson in two weeks. I'm so sorry for you. Um, He was saying that she should be the next Tory leader, and actually that would really sort of... I don't think she wants to go to Westminster. ...upturn the apple cart. I don't don't think she wants to go to Westminster. I think she is is a Scottish politician. I don't think she wants to go to Westminster. Um, But yeah, so this this is the most difficult scenario for Theresa May. Um, She would probably have to go, but it's not clear who there is to replace her, frankly. There's little obvious front bench talent. Um, Amber Rudd in that scenario would probably... Yeah, I don't know that she would keep her seat. Like, Hastings is looking Hastings very, is, very ropey. Yeah. Hastings, is it Hastings and Hastings, Wright? Hastings and Wright, yeah. Um, incidentally, I mean, she, the, she, her, the way she talks about her constituents in Hastings is appalling. And it surprises me that they haven't punished her. I mean, they might punish her for it. I, who knows? But, I mean, Osborne's return, no. Um, no. Uh, Bojo is a no-go. Uh, Bojo could lose his seat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's unlikely. It's highly unlikely. Uh, he would, he, I think almost undoubtedly he's going to end up being in a marginal. Mm-hmm. That majority is going to be massively sliced down. You can't have the prime minister in a marginal. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it seems to me that there are also powerful interests in this scenario. And the question that I've had for a long time, since June the 24th, is when... Capital, so the agglomeration of all capitalist interests, will discipline Theresa May for Brexit. Because it's not in the interest of capital. It was in the interest of a very small fraction of capital and not a dominant one in the Tory party. We've wondered this for a long time. She doesn't seem to ever have been, you know, she doesn't seem to be encountering much resistance um, from capitalists' interests um, over, over the kind of Brexit course. And one would expect, definitely in that scenario, some heavily indirect uh, pressure put on her. It, it may even be that, that proxies in the party uh, just mount a kind of leadership decapitation strategy. You know who I think we're going to replace her? David Davis. Oh, God, really? Can you yeah. imagine? I mean, he looks extremely uncomfortable where he is. Well, he looks physically unwell. <laughs> but, I mean, they all do, to be fair. But, he, I mean, he, he, he never forgave... 
a few people for losing out in 2005 mm. to Cameron. I think he thought, I mean, the, you know, the, the, the initial perception was it was either him or Ken Clark would win the leadership in 2005 and it ended up being David Cameron. And I think maybe now he thinks it's his moment. Mm. I mean, it's, so it's hard to know what this scenario does about Brexit. I don't think it changes it significantly. I think it proceeds, as we're talking about, in the large majority scenario. Um, I think it's actually even likelier to be more susceptible to hardliners here. So some people say that um, in the case of a very small majority, um, then actually Theresa May has more wiggle room because she has to say she can then say to the EU, "Look, you've got to give me concessions because you know, um, you know, the, the you know these people have have you know real strong control over me." But look, I it, you know it, it's it's hard to know what the composition of her majority will be. If she's sailing home on UKIP votes, she'll feel beholden to them. It's a very very awkward electoral coalition in that sense but look it there doesn't seem to you know it, it, it kind of hegemonizes the right but there is a strong kind of global capitalist cleavage with a kind of nativist protectionist uh, stance as well so so there's a strong kind of pulling apart of, of her which she has to straddle somehow um and there will also be serious fears about the uk economy as, as brexit proceeds so i you know I, in that scenario i really you know I, I, every time i think about how this is going to go i, I just don't I, I don't understand how how it's how she's going to do it um can i just we started yeah. the show with a poll that came out today it's um Ipsos Mori in the Evening yeah. Standard one. And then I've just seen, so the headline voting intention, and obviously that basically only takes into account people who are saying that they're very likely to vote or they're from certain demographics, which obviously that's that's intelligent way of doing things. Um, but all giving a voting intention, so it's not weighted, <coughs> Labour actually ahead. 43-40, <coughs> which is completely bananas, isn't it? Oh, well, I think you can hear my reaction. And that's just completely been... <coughs> and now that's I'm waiting. A quick, quick word on waiting. We've got just under 15 minutes left. You're listening to Navarra FM here on Resonance 104.4 FM, London's best and brightest radio station. Waiting makes sense because obviously some people are less likely to vote than others, but this is quite an extraordinary election in so much as we know, as we said, that the younger people are going to be more likely to vote than at least last time around. It will probably resemble the, the Brexit referendum last year, which was around 65%. Mm. Um, that's remarkable. That is absolutely remarkable. Yeah. 43% for the Labour Party, 40% for the Tories, and 9% for the Lib Dems, so they're slightly up. You imagine when it's unweighted that there's a few sort of Tory Tories moving to the Lib Dems. The Lib Dems are up, up nine. That won't be coming from Labour, will it? That'll be coming from mm. Tories upset with the dementia tax, which anecdotally is something I've heard as well, but that's unscientific. This is... that's. This is scientific, I say. Uh, so yes, we've got just under 15 minutes left. You're listening to Navara FM here on Resonance 104.4 FM. This is Navara Media. If you like our work, maybe you've not heard us before, check out our website, navaramedia.com. Check out our Facebook page, Navara Media. We're on Twitter, at Navara Media. We're trying to build a new media for a different politics. And, um, you know, June the 8th is just the beginning. It's not the end, sadly, because I would like to sleep. I wouldn't mind some time off. <laughs> so if you want to support our work, if you believe that we can't make possible a different kind of politics without a different kind of media, please go to support.navaramedia.com, make a one-off payment or make a subscription so we can do more podcasts, more videos and more articles. We'll also be doing events over the rest of the year, obviously, the extent of which is contingent on who forms this government next Thursday. James, we've got just over 10 minutes left. Yeah, so I, I wanted to talk a little about like the, the things that might might change the voting result. And the big one that people are talking about are kind of digital advertising, right? Facebook ads, stuff like this. And this was supposed to be, and clearly was to some extent, a large factor in the last election, right? So this micro-targeted, kind of direct, uh, digitally served uh, advertising primarily on Facebook, but there's also been a big Tory spend on Instagram and YouTube. Um, it's not regulated. Uh, advertising, political advertising in the UK during election campaigns are very, very heavily regulated. Um, our regulation has meant that political advertising is not as large a thing as in the US, but that seems to be changing now. The attack ads in the last election did seem to have some effect. But the question of how successful is, is still, I think, an open one. Um, and the question for me is also, was their success a match to the dynamics of the last election, whether there's anything different about this one? Uh, and the thing is also that they're they are susceptible to thinking about, they're, you know, they're not magic, right? Like they're, they're, you don't just roll out a digital ad and magically win. Um, Can I just say in the US election, so the, the Republicans and Donald Trump obviously spent tens of millions of dollars in the final few days targeting African-Americans in the Rust Belt, basically saying, don't vote for Clinton. And that worked. 
that probably did win the election. Um, now we know we have all the data. Obviously, Trump prevailed because of that Rust Belt vote. And there was a surprisingly low turnout amongst African-Americans in those states. So it seems to have been effective. But like you say, if somebody's got a friend sharing content that says the Tories are terrible, and then they've got an advert from somebody they've never seen before saying... Yeah. The, you know, the stories are wonderful, then I just don't know how much cut through that's going to have. Yeah, I mean, so the, the flip side to this is the, the social media factor of this election, which has multiple levels. But what's striking to me is the way it drives media coverage. And Corbyn has been very, very, very strong here. It's been a really kind of full spectrum campaign. And what's been really interesting to me is that and there's a Dan there's a question here about like cart before horse is that it's it's certainly driven I think the repolarization well, is one of the drivers but also affected by um, feedback loop right uh, the repolarization that we've seen in the two main parties in UK politics is such a strong feature of this election on both sides right so I mean and, and in fact on that it's worth saying that under Corbyn like Labour has seen the biggest increase in poll ratings for one of the two main parties in any general election campaign in history. So, um, you know, the, to quote John Curtis, who's like the sophologist in chief of, <laughs> of this election, as it seems, um, if it transpires at the ballot box, it would be the biggest increase that any of the two largest parties has managed to achieve in an election. And that is really quite a remarkable thing to think. So, you know, it, it, it's worth... And it's worth thinking about why that is. Um, and so we can... Although, yeah. I mean, the shifts that we've seen in British politics since 2008, um, obviously the global financial crisis, austerity, almost the end of the union, now leaving Brexit, these kinds of moments in the history of Britain, at least over the course of the 20th century, led to uh, realignments of political parties. So you had both the Liberal Party and... Conservative Party in the 19th century. God, my history is really showing up now. <laughs> well, you have ruptures over, for instance, things like Home Rule yeah. with the Conservative yeah. Party in the 19th century for Ireland. And in the 20th century, you see it with the Liberal Unionists and Lloyd George and Asquith, you know, going separate ways. So that's normally what would happen. A party would break up under these kinds of conditions, and we've not had it yet. So, I mean, that for me would be the sort of structural explanation mm -hmm. for the breakthrough that Corbyn's making and the absence of that event yeah. of, a th of a third party or fourth party being created or one of the two major parties splitting, I think this was possibly inevitable. I didn't think it would happen in this election. Yeah, I, I mean, and I think, it's, I think it's a feature of the British political system that this has happened inside a social, you know, like a, a, a sort of social democratic party rather than, you know, outside of it. So, um, I, you know, and, and you know, I was thinking this morning about why, you know, why is it that this has been a, a very successful campaign for Corbyn? Um, so, because the theory was right, and we must remember this that, that both the kind of so called uh, moderate Labour MPs, sort of right wing Labour MPs, um, and, and uh, uh, you know, various commentators, was that the more people were exposed to Corbyn, the more they would loathe him. And th th that seems to not be the case. Um, it seems to be the case that that, I mean, that certainly seems the case with Theresa May. But Corbyn is, is very good at. Uh, looking human in public, which is the thing people like in politicians, and we haven't really had a politician who can do a passable human being impression for a long time. Um, it's uh, you know, so it's it's a, it's a big deal. Um, it's really true. I mean, who would you say was the last PM that did that? You'd literally have to go back to the seventies, wouldn't you? <laughs> yeah. Wouldn't you? Yeah. Maybe John Major in his way, but he was just not liked for various reasons. <laughs> yeah, possibly Major, but like to a far lesser extent. Um, the Brexit position seems to have worked for them, so like uh, they kind of sliced the Gordian knot, at least among their yeah. um, among among their own base. It helps that the Tory manifesto was as bad as it was, and as kind of uh, really sort of. Uh, dour and really kind of, you know, and I think it, it was a, a misreading of the, the the electoral position to say like, look, we can get away with you know outlining some really quite quite harsh and punitive uh, adjustments to to the kind of financial structure of, of government in this country. And I, I don't, I just don't think that's true. And the other factor is the youth, right? I mean, it's just the success of the Corbyn thing among young people is astonishing. It's really, really remarkable. It's, you know, actually quite something to see. Um, and that... When Jeremy and Stormzy are <laughs> tweeting remixes of Mark McGowan. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, it's great. I mean, that's that's. I feel like great. I'm in a dream. <laughs> you know, this just is just like a. I feel like I've taken drugs or something. <laughs> We've got just over five minutes left. Sorry, James. Go on. Yeah, I just wanted to say that that all these things should combine to to call into question this 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 meme that's been circulating among like Friedland and Martin Kettle and this sort. These are some no of the Guardian um, for people that don't know. Yeah, that 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 um, you know because of Labour's success means that if Corbyn weren't in charge, then uh, actually if Yvette Cooper or Owen Smith were running the party, then 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 the party would actually be beating the Tories. Um, I think. I think this lays the groundwork for post-election attempt to kind of dethrone the left from the party, to remove it from, from leadership. Can I just uh, go over some facts? Yeah, I mean, I just this. think it's completely counterfactual. Can I, yeah, let's yeah, yeah. Labour lost 5 million votes between 1997 and 2010. 5 million votes. They lost seats to every single general election between 1997 and today. They just lost 50 seats in Scotland two years ago. And let's say Labour get, I think Labour are going to get more than 11.5 million votes, which they got in 2001. They may get more than that, a lot more. Not a lot more, but, you know, significantly more. And they're going to frame that as a loss. How can you say that a political project which lost 5 million votes over 13 years would have done better than that? The reason why Corbyn's doing so well is because we've seen a shift away from triangulation. It's a values-driven project. It actually stands for something. People can comprehend it. When you were going to people and you were saying, what do you think of Ed Miliband's position on tuition fees? He'll still have them, but there'll be three grand instead of nine grand. Or with, you know, rail, we'll bring the east coastline into public ownership, but the rest will be privatised. People go, what the hell are you talking about? I have no idea what you're mm. talking about, you know? Or with the energy cap, what are you talking about? Whereas Corbyn, they go, oh, public ownership, I understand mm. that. But yeah. I mean, it's just, again, it's about the overthinking things. I mean, again, like you say, they're la laying the groundwork here for something, but it's just completely at odds with reality. It's like they've yeah. taken ketamine or something. They're like in a parallel universe, like all everything around them is turning to Play-Doh or something. Yes. Um, I mean, I, th I, think it's, I think it's worth saying that, that, you know, this way of approaching politics, that you could replace someone at the top and that this manifesto would somehow have happened without Corbyn at the, the leadership of the Labour Party is just completely untrue uh you know and you must remember that these are people who thought who wanted labor to adopt the position currently taken by the liberal democrats and so i mean there is a real uh, you know empirical evidence that this is not a strong cut through um, i mean it, you know maybe in a small part of hampstead it's cut through but not across the country as a whole and so i think that's important um who wants another you know, I mean, EU you know, and, and look, who I mean, wants the, another eu referendum five yeah. <laughs> percent of the god. country <laughs> god i really don't um but look i mean the, 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 there it is important to say that like actually you know, th these people are also, you know, remember that Yvette Cooper had to go away and think about what she believes in. This was leaked, you know, as this was, uh, uh, you know, part of her, you know, her camp talking to the press recently. She, she had some time to go away and think about what she believes in. She's a woman who's in politics. <laughs> Surely she has some beliefs already. You know, Owen Smith was unable to conduct a campaign without gaffes. Anyway. She was a former Home Secretary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so anyway, look, the point to make is that, that, that you know, the position of the Labour Party in this election is a cohesive one, right? It comes from the membership surge, which is to do with Corbyn and to do with the politics that Corbyn represents, and it's to, and that's where the manifesto comes from, and it's where the energy and the base comes from. The, 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 these positions are not extricable from each other, right? Um, yeah, we've got three minutes left. So the big question: What does the left do if Labour form a government? <laughs> um, one minute support it <laughs> like um okay so on the one hand it because it would face it would face pressures. enormous pressure it would face enormous pressure i mean i don't think it's likely right, right. but um I, it would face enormous pressure from uh the permanent government of this country which is civil service which will um you know attempt to 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 limit its uh major changes there will be pressure from within the party that if you know if labor is in an ex it's a surprisingly good position it has to adopt so-called sensible positions i.e the right-wing ones that have lost for it over the, the past few elections um uh and so the first thing would be to resist that um to resist uh you know any attempt to moderate away from the manifesto um and then there will need to be a serious thinking about what it means to pressure a Labour government, because this is the thing that the left often doesn't think about, which is that actually a Labour government then has, you know, will, will be both susceptible to, more susceptible to pressure from below, but it will also have very, very powerful currents pushing it um, to the right. And so, so that, I think, is quite important. I mean, it wouldn't well. just be absolutely, as Paul Mason said last summer, the British establishment runs right through the middle of Victoria Street, which mm -hmm. is the Labour Party headquarters. And it wouldn't just be there, it would be 
the civil service, as you say, Whitehall, the BBC, um, big business. The Murdoch Press. Murdoch Press. Every major institution in this country would actually be trying to undermine it to every juncture uh, in partnership with the majority of the parliamentary party. Completely bananas. But then there would be a countervailing pressure of, you know, a significant section of yeah. the British public. Yeah. Just both, and you know, look, power is an adhesive, so, you know, it might yeah. keep them together a bit better. We've got one minute left. James, the election's on Thursday. What do you think is going to happen? Uh, <laughs> I think, a, a, I, I fear that it will be a small Tory majority. Hmm. And I do fear. Yeah. Uh, the most, I think the most likely thing is the Tory majority saying exactly as it is, which is kind of funny. But which, in which case, you know, you, in the middle of Brexit to call a general election and basically for nothing to move anywhere, I mean, regardless, I think May is a goner. Just my opinion. On that note, James, you were wonderful. <laughs> this is Navarra Media. We will see you same time, same place next week, and there will be a different government in place by then. See you soon. Bye. This show is brought to you by Navarra Media. To find articles, videos, and more audio content like this, head to navarramedia.com. If you particularly enjoyed this podcast and would encourage others to listen to it, why not head to iTunes? And as well as subscribing, leave us a review. Navarra Media can only exist thanks to subscribers and supporters. If you have the means, please consider subscribing at support.navaramedia.com. As well as helping us continue to produce regular content, subscribers will also receive priority access to events as well as promotions throughout the year. For regular updates, follow us on Facebook, Twitter and YouTube. Navarra Media. Media for a different politics.